0: Welcome to Terragrams. I'm Craig Verzone and I'll be your host for the Fifth Delivery of Terragrams. Today I'm joined by Jim Corner at the Penn Design Graduate School at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Jim Corner is a registered landscape architect and urban designer. He is the founder and director of field operations. As well as the chair and professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Design. His firm Field Operations is currently developing two rather high profile landscape projects in New York, the High Line and Fresh Kills Park on Staten Island. He is the author, with Alex McLean, of Taking Measures Across the American Landscape and the editor of Recovering Landscape Essays in Contemporary Landscape Architecture. He has lectured and exib- exhibited work internationally at venues such as the Museum of Modern Art in New York and San Francisco. Thank you for taking the time to join us and welcome to Terragrams. Field Operations. Where did you get the name from?
1: Um, firstly, well, f- first it had to do with trying to name the practice as more of a collective. So it's not just me, but there's others in the collective. Um, and as a collaboration. And secondly, We sort of liked the militaristic tone of the name, that landscape architects might be uh, a more active and uh, forceful uh, mode of practice. Um, So it, it has a strong sort of connotation to it. Thirdly, the fact that its field reflects an interest in fields, which on the one hand you could say are landscapes, as distinct from objects and buildings, um, but also the operational aspects of working in the field, of getting things done, which has become particularly important. That is to say, um, you know, how many utopias have been drawn? You know, thousands and millions, and they (laughs) don't always happen. So how do you conjure up great ideas and great projects, but enable them to get done. Mm-hmm. So the operational aspect of work that gets done uh, in the field is is a big aspect of it.
0: And Do you think the projects of the High Line and Fresh Kills are ripe um, for this uh, idea to be implemented?
1: Well, there's certainly two very complicated projects that... Um, go beyond just design talent. They really are projects that require smart operational capabilities. Um, They're both very complex in terms of the politics, uh, multi-headed clients, competing agendas, Mm -hmm. um, both quite fragile, they could easily just not happen. Mm -hmm. So, it's not ju- in both those projects, it's not just a case of designing a great-looking plan, um, Lenotra-style or whatever. It's also a case of situating the design in the context of getting it done. And so, there's some smart and strategic and intelligent aspects to the design that have to do with moving them forward. Fresh Kills in particular is very slow, it's a glacial project. Um, What type of
0: a timeline does it have?
1: Very long implementation timeline of 20 to 30 years. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, a a desperate need to have some sort of early gains, early rewards. um, Does it
0: seem clear that that early implementation will occur?
1: Now, yes, finally. But you know, for the past three years, you know, who knew? It was in the thick of a master plan. It was very political, very um, complicated. Not particularly a strong constituency in terms of um, political figures wanting the thing to to happen. But very recently, it's all changed around. The um, the the leadership of the city is into it, and they they found the money, and things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it 's still they they 're still very complicated projects, so yes, to answer your question they 're both very good examples yeah. of what of what field operations is about on the one hand because they're they 're complicated they 're collaborative they 're multi headed, and a large part of the work is on the one hand you know fantastic design, exciting design, but on the other hand the sort of intelligence needed to get these things done without naivete and without um, without missing the mark. How
0: has your, your design or designs, how have they evolved since the original competition entrance?
1: Uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, in some ways not a lot. I mean, conceptually, they're still very similar. But... Um, Physically and in terms of design moves, they're probably very different, mm-hmm. um, and they continue to change. I mean, I think I think that's another defining mark of uh, field operations, but perhaps also of landscape architects in general. And that is that things change, and mm-hmm. we're not so we don't feel we have to bang the table so hard. To make sure that, that's, that, that, that things have to be a certain way. Um, you know, flexibility, adaptability, ease of modification, these are all things that probably a lot of landscape architects are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but it's also very difficult to achieve. What type of tools do you use in order to um, gain this flexibility, mutatability?
1: Uh, Well, part of it's built into the designs. I mean, you know, Fresh Kills and the High Line have been big projects for us, but in the past two years we have a lot of others that have come into play that are very similar in many ways. Uh, That is to say, complicated clients, complicated programs, difficult sites. And in each case we try to develop a design strategy Rather than a fixed composition, so if I mentioned Linoture before I mean that's exactly what we do not do um, fixed compositions that can't really shift if you start shifting anything in the in the composition things get out of get out of alignment so if you can find more fluid design organizations that can adapt and be easily modified, then it gives you a lot of flexibility and it allows you to to shift.
0: Then, who makes these final formal decisions?
1: In terms of choices as to A or B, uh, because well, a
0: path that will eventually get laid into the terrain. On well, a yeah, I mean, it, it,
1: it, it, it's like any project; they go through iterations. Um, you know there's concept design, schematic design, design development, construction documentation. Every step of the design process is an iteration. And you know that in the iteration there's refinement. And some things that you had early go. New things come in. Some things that you had early that you got rid of come mm-hmm. back. Um, you know, it's always, it's always changing. Um, and hopefully the final the final built result is a reflection of a decision making process mm-hmm. that, that dealt with all of the issues.
0: Is it easy to keep all of your collaborators up to speed with this high rate of change, the engineers, your, uh, the architects? Well,
1: it's cer- certainly harder when it gets into um, design development and construction documentation, because at that point, there's a timeline. And a deadline um, and it's it gets hard if you have to move something that has deep mm-hmm. implications mm-hmm. Um, so we try to we, 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 you know the the actual physical design we try to get down earlier on in the project mm-hmm. and w- w- when we have time to do that
0: right. and then after the project or the the first pieces of the Project are constructed. What are the pieces of the landscape that then go on to mutate?
1: Well, that's I mean that's a big part of the idea of the practice, and that is that we build landscapes that we're happy to let go of, and uh, that they uh, take on a life of their own. Um, and so it's important to f- you know get those landscapes adequately fed, if you will. Mm-hmm in terms of water or nutrients or the flows and the energies that will move through the system so that the thing is as robust and as resilient and as dynamic as it can be. And it's it's that aspect of letting it go and uh, grow, in some ways predictable, in other ways completely unpredictable, that I think is an innate part of the medium and what makes it really... Fantastic.
0: Could you describe just briefly for our listeners the type of each of the different projects? High lines being the reconversion of a railroad right. line, and then Fresh Kills, a, a landfill, which will get converted into a
1: well. They're both park. they're both very similar in that they're post-industrial landscapes. So they're the they're the they're the after results of industrial processes. Um, and they carry with them various semantic and, and semiotic uh, uh, characteristics of, of 20th century you know, in, industrial uh, product. Um, on the other hand, they're very different. Um, Fresh Kills is four square miles, and it's a huge area in all dimensions. Uh, it's extremely topographic. It's huge-scale experience. Um, And technically, also, the technical issues there are are, are very specific to that site. Mm -hmm. The High Line is very different in that it's linear. It's a mile and a half long, which sounds a big deal, but it's, you know, it's a 20-minute walk. It's Mm -hmm. not that big a deal. And it's only 30 feet wide. So it's actually... uh, you know, at level of scale and detail and technical issues and experiential issues, they're very, very mm-hmm. different.
0: And relatively speaking, it's in a super dense The contexts
1: are totally different. Mm-hmm. Stat- Staten Island is more of a residential community, um, car-oriented. The High Line is in the middle of a dense city um, with all of the mm-hmm. built developments um, surrounding it.
0: Would you say that the reconversion or conversion of these post-industrial landscapes is a new park typology, sure. or is it, is it a park typology that's existed over the past century? Uh,
1: you could you could say so. I mean, yeah. Look, I mean, uh, Central Park is a case in point, for example. Um, is just as technological and just as innovative and just as rich as any new park today the 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 same uh, complexity of technical issues and design issues are is the same mm-hmm. uh, at least in terms of scope maybe their natures are different but the scope's mm-hmm. the same um, however um, landscape architects should be thankful for post industrial <laughs> era because it's 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 Produced all of these sites now that no one knows what, any, mm-hmm. what, what to do with them. And um, they rely on landscape architects to imagine mm-hmm. scenarios for what these places could be and to also bring the techniques to make them happen.
0: Without them, would we, would we be out of work?
1: I don't know if we'd be out of work, but we'd be, um, I, I think, we'd be sort of marginal players in society. Um, limited to either very wealthy people's um, estates and gardens or to smaller-scale uh, urban open space projects. So the fact that you know, we're now engaged with multimillion-dollar or even billion-dollar projects um, that have a high degree of visibility and social relevancy, I mean, people are really interested in what happens mm-hmm. to these places, it, it's just great for the profession's mm-hmm. uh, cachet and credibility and relevancy
0: isn't isn't it odd that North America is growing like crazy outward or uh, sort of inside the country the the towns are growing outward yet the major public projects aren't serving those communities that are growing outward they're serving the communities that are, are inward right. isn't it odd that There's not a public space typology, a new public space typology associated with this growth.
1: What, for the outside? For the 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 exurb. For
0: the exurbs.
1: I mean, the exurbs have their... their, The the suburbs and the exurbs have their own characteristic landscapes with which landscape architects are involved. They might be bad landscape architects and uninteresting (laughs) landscape architects and producing a landscape that, you know, has you know, some positive attributes, but also some, some, some negative attributes. The homogeneity and sameness being one of them. Um, however, having said that, um, developers are now finding that it's increasingly difficult to build further and further out. The infrastructures aren't there. Um, uh, uh, large environmental and community groups are causing a lot of grief for them. So there's a renewed interest in the city now. and We have when, hope. Sure. And when, and when you have, you know, thousands of acres of land in the city that's capable of being redeveloped, that's a huge asset for both the city and for entrepreneurial developers and for really a 21st century society that's looking to be part of a collective and not so much... Uh, an individualist out on the plains anymore. How did
0: you get involved with the architects Diller and Scafidio on the project, the highlight?
1: Well, I mean, a, a lot of our projects are, we have teams and we have collaborations of one sort or another. Um, we've worked with a lot of architects, Peter Eisenman or Renzo Piano or Stephen Hall um, and, and many others. With uh, the Highline, Field Operations put in the proposal, but we wanted an architect to work with us to deal with uh, the architectural aspects of the project that are primarily to do with access and how you get on and off of the Highline. And we thought that they would have the right sensibility in terms of both fun and wit. Mm-hmm. and uh, intelligence uh, combined with uh, expertise with detail and materiality and how these things will get made. So they've they, they've played a big role in terms of ideas for how you can, can get on and off the high line. It is 30 feet up in the air. Mm-hmm. And how this can be done with a sort of... Uh, you know uh, intelligent and in an unusual way It'll be well detailed
0: uh, this, therefore your role on this project is more of a leader or is that of a leader as it perhaps it is in the field operations is the lead mm-hmm. for the
1: project um, and it on is it. a landscape architectural project
0: mm-hmm. in other projects which you're drawn in on um, as a consultant what type of role do you take as landscape architect
1: well, most of the projects we have at the moment, um, I mean, the fresh, fresh Kills and the High Line have been well publicized. <laughs> but we also have a huge uh, botanical garden in Puerto Rico. Um, we're also doing a campus master plan for the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, we have a tropical botanical garden in Taiwan. Um, we're doing a huge Las Vegas casino Pool and outdoor garden area. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of other projects in the office that are in many ways are just as big and, uh, and as exciting as Fresh Killers and the Highline. Line. Mm-hmm. Um, they all involve collaborators, um, but in all of those projects, Field Operations is the lead, mm-hmm. the lead office. Um, now there are some other projects where we are brought on as consultants. Um, but we tend to still work fairly collaboratively. For example, the Columbia University um, campus expansion plan uh, to relocate or, or to, to build a brand new campus in Manhattanville, in Harlem, uh, is a huge uh, 13, 14 block area in Manhattan. Uh, it's being master planned by Renzo Piano mm-hmm. and SOM and we are collaborating with them on the Open Space Framework. And there are ideas that we had about the Open Space Framework that has led to the reshaping of how the buildings work. Uh, And there's been ideas about the buildings that's impacted how Mm -hmm. the Open Space Plan works. So, you know, inevitably these projects end up with a good... um, collaborative structure with a back and forth um, we tend not to do projects where there's the space has already been figured mm-hmm. and it's simply a case of deciding what to what to plant in that mm-hmm. space that, that's not that's not our interest and, and and we don't do that
0: do you think in general that the voice of the landscape architect is strong uh,
1: well um, it depends how you position yourself as an individual. You, um, I mean, I remember a meeting many years ago, but it sort of was eye-opening, where um, the nature of the project was clearly a landscape urban design project. It um, had to do with some very large buildings, some of them historical, some of them to yet be built, in a very large campus. And uh, a, a sort of business and technology campus. And I remember a meeting, and the, there was an architect, and all the architect could talk about was the size of the footprints of the buildings and the need to cut courtyard spaces and to let light in. And that was the nature, that was the extent of mm. their um, their their interests, if you will. And a traffic engineer who could only speak about how many cars this place could park and all of the logistics of traffic planning and all of that and that was the limits of his interest and there was a landscape architect around the table who could only um, speak about a stream corridor that went through the site and the birds and plant life in the stream corridor Mm -hmm. and when they spoke the engineer and the architect were rolling their eyes Mm -hmm. because of course that's the least important thing from their point of view and as the engineer and the architect spoke, I saw the landscape architect rolling their eyes because they were hearing about traffic and square footage and this sort of thing. And I think you know what you've got to do is to go to the table and be able to talk about buildings, infrastructure, engineering, and the birds, and the stream, and the flowers, all as if it's one environment and not be so uh, restrictive in where your values and interests mm-hmm. lie
0: has your background in, in urban design trained you to think Oh history? sure.
1: Yeah, I mean I came into urban design. I used to work for Richard mm-hmm. Rogers and Partners on the London Docklands. This was in the early 80s and I was I was just a young kid in the office, but you couldn't help but notice that everyone that was working on the docklands was puzzled by them. By their scale, by their nature, the architects had been trained to do buildings. Mm -hmm. The landscape architects had been trained to do landscapes. No one had really been trained to look at this sort of scale and uh, treat it as a new synthetic urban environment. Um, The architects, you know, it was noticeable, you know, they could simply only draw awnings on existing Mm -hmm. buildings with people flying kites and floating boats (laughs) in the water, and that was the limit of of that, and the landscape architects just put trees everywhere, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in probably a landscape where trees weren't necessarily the, the most characteristic feature of a landscape that's hard and granitic and open to the elements. So I was very struck then, too, by the sort of uh, uh, limited imagination that professional training gives you, Um, that as a landscape architect you can only deal with greenery and that as a building architect you can only deal with Mm -hmm. building. And so yes, urban design became um, something I wanted to learn a lot more about because I really wanted to work on um, projects that were synthetic. And that involved as much building and engineering and infrastructure as much as they did um, landscape and uh, ecologies and and natural environments. And it's that synthesis, really, that really really interests me. We're doing a a great project in Baltimore right now for a developer. Um, We're doing the whole thing. We've we've laid out the urban plan, it's 4 million square feet of building, um, but landscape is the framework and the infrastructure that holds the whole thing together. Uh, the developer will probably build all of the landscape framework and then probably mm-hmm. sell a lot of the building sites to different builders and different architects. So there's a landscape architect, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, using landscape as an instrument for development, Um, not in a defensive posture and not in a sort of um, uh, mine and yours position, but actually building a total environment Mm -hmm. uh, and driving that and at the same time foregrounding landscape.
0: What is the composition of your office that allows you to do this? Are you all landscape architects, or do you really have a well, very diverse? Well, I mean, the
1: the the stack. office is a is a uh, interesting um, story, and we we'll talk about it later probably because it's complicated. But you know, bear in mind that four years ago, I was I was me and two people mm-hmm. basically, and um, one of those two was in and out and part time. I mean, it was very. Very small projects, basically no revenue, and a lot of debt. (laughs) And uh, only when we got Fresh Kills did we then open a New York office. And I opened a New York office because I needed people, and that's where they are, and they won't won't come to Philadelphia. Um, And when we opened it, we had 12 people. And now we're close to 30. Well. and uh, a need to grow even more um, so in a very very short time we've gone from a sort of small practice to a fairly big big practice and, uh, and it, it's difficult however by hiring really really good people who are really at the top of their game um, and by hiring people that have multiple degrees a lot of our um, a lot of our people have two master's degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them a master of landscape architecture with a master of architecture. Some of them, with a, there's one with a master in public policy with a master in landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. So they bring um, a, f- a fuller range of skills and capabilities with them. And again, that really helps us with, the, with what's called depth in a in a business, that it's not just James Corner that 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 the phone rings for, but that there are other people that mm-hmm. that are credible and and productive and important, and um, and that's the way it's going. But that's not to say it's easy.
0: Tell us a bit about your managing director.
1: Well, every office once you get past ten needs a managing director. Um, uh, and Tom Tom Jost is, is, is a really good um, administrator. He takes care of the contracts and the organization of the office and the fiscal uh, financial aspects of it. Um, he also has a degree in urban planning, um, so he looks after some of the larger urban planning projects that we have. Mm-hmm.
0: And the structure below you, would you say it's horizontal?
1: I I think it used to be like two years ago. I'd say it was mm -hmm. pretty horizontal, Um, but now you know by necessity, it's it's sort of evolved into 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 an hierarchical Mm -hmm. structure. Not not because we like hierarchy, but because there has to be for any project, there has to be a a a single person that feels the world is Mm -hmm. on their shoulders, Mm -hmm. that they are the responsible figure for making sure the work gets done and the deadlines get done. and Because of that responsibility and that commitment, they need to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, typically they rely then on one other person um, to be their sort of right-hand person. Their sidekick. And, and then there's the design team, um, and then increasingly now we need like interns who, um, who can just help with, with a lot of the running around. Mm-hmm. So, ideally, it would be a horizontal structure, and that's, that's how it was, um, but now we've got to a point where we've had to institute um, structure.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's space in the landscape architecture profession for small, young small offices, or do we all have to wait until we grow up and get big for the interesting projects?
1: Uh, I think it's fine, but I I also think it's a little bit of a, in the US it's a little bit of a problem in both architecture and landscape architecture, that there's something about the training um, and the uh, aura of what it means to be an architect and a landscape architect that you'll have your own office one day, um, no matter how small that might be. And it's a bit of a problem. It makes it especially difficult for mid-sized offices to grow because um, because talent might leave and open their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I understand the allure of a small practice, but uh, people also need to understand the difficulty of maintaining that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, having access to some of the more interesting and, and challenging projects, um, I think the real question is how do you grow to say a mid sized office um, in such a way that you retain your very very best people mm-hmm. um, and that they become part of the part of the collective um, I think oMA is for example very good at doing that um, there's, there's a number of firms that have found ways to make sure that super talented people uh, become loyal to the brand and stick 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 with the firm <laughs> um, there's lots of other stories that I've, I've heard about from Frank Gehry's office or from Tom Main about you know talented people are doing very well flying business class too World-class projects, um, and then after they finish that project, they feel it's the right time to mm-hmm. leave. They leave, and two years later, they're they're depressed, bankrupt, <laughs> and wondering what to do with their lives because so you know it's just such a hard um, field to make it work.
0: Do you think there's a difference between? Um, the way the practices are run here in the United States, and the way
1: they're run in the
0: UK or in Europe.
1: Um, well, no, I mean I think they're all. They're, they're, there's a lot of similarities in terms of. In terms of the structures that are necessary and the nature of the work and the sort of economics, uh, there's a lot of a lot of similarities. Jim
0: Corner is a landscape architect and urban designer, and founder and director of Field Operations. He is also the chair and professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Design. I'm going to change gears. You're the author of a book called Taking Measures Across America with Alex McLean, who is a photographer. How did you you get involved in that project?
1: Well, that was me coming to the United States from England, and just being fascinated with with the with the sort of scale and grandeur of the American landscape, and um, initially just out of an idea of just wanting to, uh, in uh, the most expedient way I could, survey the American mm-hmm. landscape. So uh, I conjured up this idea of flying across the American landscape and 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 looking at it from the air and photographing it and combining um, that seeing with your eyes with information that might be found in maps uh, and in surveys and in understanding why the patterns you're looking at are the way they are. So research. Um, And that led to a grant being written, and we got some money, and I knew Alex McLean, Mm. um, and I asked him to to join me on this, and so the two of us, you know, spent probably two years flying around every other weekend or something, and... um, It must have been great. It was great fun, and, you know, there was a lot of... uh, We had some research assistants here at Penn, and we... Collected maps, and we tried to find out about these 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 fascinating things we were looking at, and then that led to a sort of theoretical position, if you will. That um, if these forms are so cool, and and you know, as landscape architects, were interested in form and geometry and pattern. Uh, what are the uh, agents that are that's driving the form? Because none of the forms we saw. Had anything to do with artistic symbolism or design, mm-hmm. they were they were mostly pragmatic landscapes, pra- uh, instrumental landscapes. They were landscapes that were doing something. They were active, mm. and that seems to me much more honest than uh, you know than confection landscapes, mm-hmm. landscapes that you design with patterns and forms because the patterns and forms look cool versus patterns and forms that might actually be doing something and being productive
0: aside from the photos how did you reveal these the functions behind these landscapes
1: well part of it's in the in the short caption explanation in the book part of it's in the mappings and the sort of um a play on what a map is and the information a map contains um And importantly, the dimensionality of things. I mean, again, as a teacher at the time, also teaching design, I I felt that students of design didn't really have a good sense of the importance of precision and dimension. It seemed to be that if you could just uh, gesture a spiral or a circle with a big, fat, crude pen, Mm -hmm that somehow that was landscape architecture and in in actual fact you know issues of spacing and dimension how big and how small how close and how far uh... issues of scale you know these are all choices that have a precision to them and i was very interested in in how many of these patterns we were looking at in the pragmatic landscape were actually very precisely gauged by either the surveyor or the farmer or the occupant that, you know, they weren't just sloppily or um, accidentally or, uh, you know, randomly placed. Mm -hmm. There was precise intentionality. And I thought that was really a, a real learning point. And so we tried to convey that in the essays and also in the selection of photographs. I mean, bear in mind I don't know how many plates there are in the book. Let's say there's a hundred photographs. We probably had 5,000 photographs to sift through. And um, so which ones finally made the cut had to do with a lot of what they contained.
0: Mm. Were you influenced at all by anyone in the way that you represented, in the way that you made the diagrams representing these landscapes?
1: The maps and the diagrams, I don't know. I mean, I think I was just more inspired by the u s g s maps themselves mm-hmm. i mean if you know you just look at these things and they're amazingly mm-hmm. uh amazingly beautiful uh super laconic i mean they you know the information the depth of information with such minimal means in the map' um, so, you know so if there's any inspiration, it was really just mm-hmm. just the sort of Lacanism and clarity and content of some of these maps we were working with. And it was just a case of transforming them and highlighting and, um, um, uh, you know, um, drawing out of the map the point we wanted to make.
0: And here uh, in the Penn Design School, do you encourage your students to make mappings during their process of design?
1: Well, there's an essay I wrote on the agency of mapping in a collection Dennis Cosgrove made called Mappings. And so I suppose by default, you know, there's an interest in mapping. Mm -hmm. Um, Landscape architects do it by default whenever they do site analysis. There's a mapping activity that goes on. Um, But I think what what interests me isn't um, only um, mapping and observation as analysis, but also how mapping and observation can actually construct a project. Mm -hmm. Um, That is to say that if you map a site in one way, it's setting up the conditions for a particular kind of project. If you map it in a totally different way it's setting up a totally different set of conditions so that is a big lesson we teach to the students that is um, look when when you think you're doing analysis when you think you're mapping and recording and observing and paying attention to certain things you know what what the world the picture of analysis that you're constructing is actually the basis around which mm-hmm. your project's going to evolve by default. Mm-hmm. So if you can become more aware of that, you can play a much more uh, fluid and lively game with mapping Mm -hmm. than just rote documentation. Once you realize that maps are just elaborate fictions, they're just made up. They're made up because they show some part fact, but there's a lot of stuff they don't show. And so by default, their their very selectivity makes them fictional. The minute you realize that, then you can play a great game in terms of recasting um, the site from the very beginning. So yeah, at Penn, it's a sort of a big deal. Um, However, having said that, I mean, I think it was super big here at Penn in the 90s, in the the mid and late 90s. Um, But more recently, we've sort of... Taken um, a little bit of a detour because um, mapping was becoming an end in itself, mm-hmm. and um, it shouldn't be that. It's simply, it's simply a technique that allows the project mm-hmm. to develop, but it's not something that you just limit mm-hmm. your thinking to.
0: The school here has changed recently. Could you tell us a little bit about that change?
1: Well, how recently?
0: In the past ten years.
1: Oh. <laughs> Well the school's got a great tradition I mean it was founded by Ian macag in nineteen fifty something and he you know as you know was just a larger than life figure um, in many ways transformed the field of landscape architecture because in the fifties, landscape architecture was really restricted to garden art and um you know, the design of larger landscapes, but mostly for corporations or for smaller sectors of cities. And McHarg just totally blew up, blew open the field of possibility and extended it to larger scales as well as uh, uh, multiple disciplines, foregrounding, of course, ecology and science, but also uh, anthropology and economics and even health, uh, issues of health, public health. So, in a sense, he took you know, a sort of garden profession and expanded it to a much greater world of political and social and environmental relevancy. Now, it's fair to say that when that moved into the 70s, late 70s, and into the early 80s, it, it was becoming, again, a little bit about itself. As a sort of planning regimen, and further and further distance from landscape architecture and, and design. And um, when McCogg stepped down as chairman and Anne Spurn came in, her mandate was really to bring design back into the foreground, and um, she hired me as a young assistant professor at that time, and there were others. So the school began to change really at, at, at that point. Um, John Dixon Hunt came along in the mid-90s, and we wanted that, we wanted him to help enrich our sort of theoretical and critical uh, and historical uh, nature of the program. And then when I became chair in 2000, my mission really was to sort of internationalize the program, um, which we've done. and. Um, foreground urbanism and urban des- urban design as part and parcel of of a landscape architectural education. Mm-hmm. So what I really want is for graduates from Penn to be the sort of practitioner I was just describing, that they can sit around a table with traffic engineers and planners and architects and not be intimidated, and not feel that they're scope is restricted to the open space nice. but to be able to be a- actively a participant in how the project discussion evolves
0: and what kind of advice do you give these graduates
1: just go for it I mean be super ambitious uh, super adventurous and you know make a difference and and don't don't just settle for... For, for the status quo, or for fitting the bill with, with regard to normative expectations. You know, try to um, try to stretch your ambition, stretch your vision, and, and be adventurous.
0: And finally, as a closing question, how do you see your work evolving in the years to come?
1: Well, I, I, I think we've got to be very careful, because we're getting so busy and um, the projects are so complicated that it's really difficult to, uh, at the same time, make sure that the work remains fresh and um, you know lives up to its expectations. Mm. Um,
0: That's no small task with an office of thirty, which is growing to no.
1: I mean, it's it's 40, a, it, it's, it, it's it's a big problem, and I I think I. There are others that have had to deal with this, I'm sure, but um, you know how, how to keep the work fresh and lively, and when it goes into construction, to make sure that it that it's that it's great is is difficult given all of the sort of harassment we get from from the from the complex aspects of the, mm. of the project. Um, also, you know, I don't want to leave the sort of Theoretical or um, exploratory aspects of, of what I was doing in the 90s, um, and how to find time for that is is going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping in the next few years that you know the, the office will be successful, that we'll get some great things built, that we'll be able to keep the work fresh, um, and at the same time perhaps get some books or some publications that foreground the design work but also set theoretical Mm -hmm. bases for moving forward.
0: Well, best of luck.
1: Thank you. And
0: thanks for joining us. Pleasure. You are listening to Terragrams and our guest is Jim Corner, a landscape architect and urban designer and founder and director of Field Operations. He's also chair and professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Design. Thank you for joining us for the fifth dispatch of TerraGrams. To find out more about TerraGrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. TerraGrams is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and the Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to The Books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself to more of The Books at www.thebooks.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the fifth delivery of Terrograms. lemon